Well, uh, I'm joined now by uh, Dr. Sarah Hammerschlag, who uh, is another one of our panelists uh, on our Author Meets Critics panel uh, for David Neuheiser's Hope in a Secular Age. And uh, first, I just want to say, um, Sarah, thanks for joining me and thanks for taking the time to do this pre-recorded um, sort of uh, conversation uh, for our panel. Sure, my pleasure. It's been really fun to read the book and I look forward to hearing what other people had to say too. Yeah, so I, you know, as, as I've been asking other folks, my first question is just, um, what, what do you take to be David's sort of contributions or most important or most significant contributions uh, in the book? Sure. I mean, I guess I'd begin by saying that um, interest in the connection between negative theology and reading deconstruction is, of course, not new. And uh, David Neuheiser is well aware of that. Um, and he's well aware in his book of what's been written on the topic. Um, but what he does is he writes with a different set of criteria um, for thinking the two together uh, on the axis of political ethics, I would say, rather than ontology or epistemology. Um, so I have to admit that I never shared much interest in the original line of inquiry, um, though I do find his criticisms of certain players in that conversation to be helpful. For example, I uh, share his um, reading of Martin Hagelin's radical atheism is somewhat tone deaf um, to the religious register in Derrida's work, for example. Um, and I will say that I'm not entirely convinced now of the worthwhile nature of comparing Pseudo-Dionysus and Derrida, um, but I am interested in the way it shifts the emphasis of what the negative has to do to the political and, ethic, and the ethical. Um, and I, what I do really share with him is an interest in recognizing Derrida as an important political resource um, and certainly the cost concept of hospitality as an orientation to futurity is fundamental to that, what for David is understood as hope. Um, so I guess I'd say that I see the contribution as really the shifting of the deconstructive negative theology debate to the political ethical access. Um, and I would say as well that the other thing I think that um, Neuheiser does really nicely is that he points out why a Derridian lens is crucial to a political vision that counters dogmatic adherence on the right and the left. And I think that that's really important right now, countering dogmatic adherence on the right and the left. Um, and I appreciate the resources that he brings to that conversation. And I'm grateful that there are other voices that are thinking exactly on that question. So I appreciate having him as a conversation partner. I'd say I also share and appreciate the desire to point out the political impact of Derrida's positions against those who dismiss him for lacking a kind of straightforward programmatics. And I feel like um, that Neuheiser addresses that really nicely in his book, so. You know, much of your work centers on, uh, you've done so much work on Derrida and uh, thinking about uh, politics and ethics uh, and other uh, themes and motifs. I'm wondering uh, how uh, your own approach and your own work on Derrida uh, and, and beyond differs from, from David's and, and his analysis. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there's a certain proximity and a certain difference. I mean, you know, I think the question that I had reading Neuheiser's book and thinking about its relationship to my own work is whether it's really just the future orientation of Derrida or the sort of the, the, the focus on hope that's actually the most important or fruitful political resource in, the, in Derrida's corpus. Um, so you mentioned, you know, my earlier work. And so, you know, in Broken Tablets, I really argued for the political salience that emerges from Derrida's engagement with literature, um, particularly as the nexus he sets up between literature and democracy in a book like Gift of Death, um, and thus the reconceptualization of the subject of democracy that 
is for, I think without the transparent and autonomous subject, which I think is so important to a kind of liberalism at its center. Um, and I've been thinking quite a bit about this lately as I've imagined, unfortunately, what kind of responses one takes if in fact Trump manages to um, subvert the electoral college. Um, and you know, I've been thinking about what does it look like if we have a general strike, right? And I've been thinking that Derrida would have actually appreciated a general strike in this moment because it, it would very much be something along the line of Bartleby's, I prefer not to. It would be everybody saying, you know what? In this case, I prefer not to participate. I prefer not to contribute to the goals of this democracy because that's the position I've been put into. And that is one of the ways in which like that, that democratic force is one of the things I see in Derrida quite, quite importantly. Um, but I've been thinking in a slightly different direction lately. So even though like I've been thinking about what I've already said about it, I've also been um, been working on this project that's on Sarah Kaufman and Derrida. Um, and you know I, I'll talk a little bit about that. But um, but I have to say that most of my recent um, thinking about Derrida and politics has has had to be in the face of the response of my students um, because I've been teaching this course on the fetish this term. Um, and the, the class begins with um, Tamako Masuzawa's Troubles with Materiality, Fetishism in the 19th Century, um, which is on why um, fetishism after Max Mueller was rejected from the study of religion. It's not in the critical terms volume. Um, and yet the term, right, continues to persist in the social sciences. Um, and, you know, so we've done this kind of long historical reading of the history of the fetish, um, going back to Charles de Brasse, going back um, to reading Bozeman, as um, William Peets um, you know, gives us a fair amount of Bozeman in, in Peets' three-part essay on the fetish. So they've, they've, really, they've really kind of had to slog through looking at kind of the violent impact of this concept. But it was kind of when we got to Gla, when we got to the sort of passage in Derrida's Gla, that I felt like both their reactions to this history and Derrida's response to it really kind of helped me figure out what I think is most political, politically salient in his work. And it has to do, you know, in contrast, I think, to Neuheiser's argument with really thinking about the way he understands the concept of inheritance. Um, so there's this passage in, in Gla, which if you don't mind, I actually want to read it because it's, it's really about um, the, the fetish. And it's, um, it's despite all the variations to which it can be submitted, the concept fetish includes an invariant predicate. It is a substitute for the thing itself, a center and source of being, the origin of presence, the thing itself par excellence, God or the principle, the archon, which occupies the center of function in a system, for example, the phallus in a certain phantasmatic organization. If the fetish substitutes itself for the thing itself and its manifest presence and its truth, there should no longer be any fetish as soon as there is truth, the presentation of the thing itself and its essence. But of course, there still is the fetish, right? Um, so that's the, that's the rub. I mean, and you could read this passage as a statement, a, an alternative statement of Derrida's own concept of supplementarity, right? But in the context of the history of the fetish, it has a really different resonance. And so it certainly did for my students because the history of the term represents the history of the colonial project and the way in which that infuses the history of philosophy. Um, it involves the attribution onto the colonial other, a mistaken way of apprehending the world in order to secure a difference that masks the fact that the center is always the site of a kind of ruse, right? So, you know, Derrida considers multiple roles that the term has played, and he really, he sort of runs through the history himself in the space of like four pages, right? Um, he brings in Hegel, he brings in Kant, he brings in, really, he brings in Charles de Brasse's 1760 text on the worship of the fetish gods, um, and he suggests that the common theme is the fetish's role as a means to differentiate the fake from the real. 
but he uses it otherwise to point out that whether we're discussing religion or politics or the self, some sign must stand in for the stabilizing center. And often the fact that the center cannot in fact come to presence, cannot secure meaning stability is indicated or dealt with by means of differentiating what should maintain that space from its counterpart, its bad substitute. And he thinks about this in terms of, of Freud's image of the athletic support belt, you know, that's what it stands between the two. But the question that emerged for my students um, is essentially, and it's been emerging all term, right? And they, and they it emerged most poignantly in relationship to Derrida was what are we supposed to do after we've learned that the history of rationality, which is they think what this is what we've been trained in, right? We've been trained to be rational thinkers. If I suddenly have to come to terms with the fact that the history of that is also a history marked by the violence of racism and sexism, how am I supposed to think going forward, right? And I don't think that, of course, my students are alone in asking that question. I think many of us ask that question. Um, but I think what's interesting to me was kind of watching my students want to run away. They want to say, okay, well, what else can we use? How can we get away from the tradition? What does the outside look like, right? Um, and, you know, for me, what's I think both fascinating and fruitful about Derrida is that he suggests that there, there isn't a space to run to. Um, that one, in fact, has to recognize that that history is our history and that it doesn't matter whether you're one who's benefited from colonialism and sexism or whether you're one who suffered from it. In fact, you still are also the inheritor of this way of thinking and that that has to involve another way of going forward, but it isn't a way of going forward that can so easily divest it onto another so that the drive to say, no, no, this is your fault, you've done it, he disenables that capacity. Um, and I think that's one of the things that David is quite interested in, in, in Derrida's work. And so I think that is actually a point that we share. Um, but so for me, this has become particularly fruitful in thinking about Sarah Kaufman reading Derrida, um, because unlike, I mean, Derrida himself no doubt suffered. He suffered when he was expelled from schools in North Africa. He no doubt suffered from, from racism and, um, and from anti-Semitism. But, but Kaufman is different because she stays very close to Derrida's text, but she writes as somebody who, who is a woman um, who is very aware of the force of sexism and as somebody who is a Holocaust survivor whose father died at Auschwitz. And so when she reads Derrida and when in some sense she, she, she stays close to his project, but in a, in a different kind of way, the force of what it means to have to inherit the tradition, to have to bear it, um, that has a different kind of force coming out of her mouth. Um, so, you know, for, for Kaufman, it's not just Derrida, it's also Freud and Nietzsche who, who are really the resources. And she stays close to both of them and, and to Plato and indeed to, to Socrates um, by way of Plato. She shadows them. And indeed, she's interestingly, she's faithful to them in a way that runs against the very impulse in these thinkers to declare truth by expelling some other model to the outside. Um, she manages to read them otherwise, though, so while also identifying the drive to mastery that's manifest within them. What's interesting about Gla, I think, so Kaufman wrote about Gla in this text, Sakloche, um, is that for, for Kaufman, Gla itself becomes, by way of the, the concept of the fetish, becomes a model for occupying the tradition otherwise, um, for occupying the possibility of what she calls a generalized fetishism. Um, now Derrida speaks himself of the way in which Freud's account of the fetish rests on the logic of a, the undecidability, the loss of center or the phallus and its memorialization. Um, but he ultimately suggests that Freud is really incapable of divesting himself of a strict fetishism 
or the desire for the thing itself. But um, there's a suggestion in the text at a certain moment near this discussion of fetish that a generalized fetishism is a way of occupying the tradition otherwise, um, and that it would involve this oscillation, this form of oscillation. Um, and that it, what would it involve is it would involve holding together both the sense of loss and the sense of substitution. Loss and oscillating between loss and substitution. That's kind of the logic of the fetish that he pulls from Freud's text, even if he thinks that Freud is still caught up in um, seeing the fallacies at the center. So Sarah Kaufman, interestingly, at a certain moment suggests that even this mode of Derrida's might be its own form of mastery, a means of having it both ways, if you will. Um, but she also suggests that it that it involves a way to live with our tradition, um, with our inheritance, um, to see in it sites of anxiety and loss. Um, now, of course, I think the decolonizing project is always about that, um, but it also, I think, functions by reading these impulses towards mastery um, as something that we can distance ourselves from, saying like, oh, well, this is the history of white men, and so therefore it's white men who need to be blamed for it. What I think is so fruitful for Kaufman and what's been interesting for me in this course in particular is saying, you know, what's interesting about her is that she doesn't divest herself of the same drive to mastery. She recognizes the aggression drive as something that accompanies thinking and accompanies any kind of search for truth. Um, so, what do I want to say next? Um, What's helpful for me about Kaufman and Derrida is the suggestion that because of the history of colonization, we're all inheritors of it, those who benefited and those who've been victims. Um, and there's a certain proximity, I think, in Kaufman to something that Neuheiser finds in Derrida, but it's articulated differently. And this is where the, I think, you know, Neuheiser thinks about it in terms of hope. And, and, and Kaufman, and this is, this is really her principle. I don't think it's exactly coming out of Derrida, but in an extension of a Derridian kind of project, she, she pulls this phrase from Nietzsche's um, genealogy of morals, um, the phrase, the, the, the concept in French of tenir parole, which you know, would translate in English translations of, of Nietzsche's genealogy as um, a promise-making capacity. Um, what's interesting is that for Nietzsche, it's actually impedes um, it impedes human health, right? It's, it's, it's forgetfulness that actually um, humans need in order to, to be healthy. But in Kaufman's work, it becomes an, an epic of reading, um, a way to recuperate a promising reading from a troubling text to safeguard its word is a way of thinking about it. So here's where I really connect up with Neuheiser's project, but in a different way. Um, as I understand Kaufman here, the principle of dissemination as future-oriented, as hospitable to difference, is fundamentally connected to the fact of inheritance. And Kaufman salvages from Nietzsche a reading that goes against the grain of the text, interprets it as a kind of fidelity, but opens it to a profound reinterpretation. So much so that she actually retrieves Nietzsche from a Heideggerian metaphysical reading, but also, of course, from a Nazi appropriation. And she actually even finds a kind of Jewish Nietzsche, if you can believe it. Um, and this is the power of dissemination. The power of dissemination is the promise of its being future-oriented. Um, it's the promise that our texts hold within them the potential to be read against the grain, to be read otherwise. And this, of course, I think is also a manifestation of hope. Um, what could be more hopeful, really, right, than Kaufman finding in Nietzsche such a resource? Um, but it's accompanied by a profound acknowledgement of our debt and I mean that in a negative sense of our debt to the past, a debt that can't be expunged. 
certainly not by suggesting that we stand outside of it or against it, um, exempt from the impulses that drove it. So the other final way in which I'd say I kind of connect up with Neuheiser's project is insofar as one of his foils is the kind of post-critical turn in Sedgwick and Felsky. Um, now his suggestion, and I agree with it, is that critique is not the problem, right? It's critique that's accompanied by a good conscience, um, and I don't disagree. But I think what's interesting is that I find in Derrida, particularly as read by Kaufman, um, the very resources that Sedgwick and Felsky both seem to see as distinct from critique. Um, in Kaufman, you really get it nicely articulated in this in this notion of fidelity. I mean, I think in Derrida you get it you get it articulated um, in the notion of the promise too. Um, but it's it's fundamentally reparative, um, and that's a term, of course, at Sedgwick's. It's it's reparative, even if not entirely divorced from critique. So I guess what I share with Neuheiser, but also I think in contradistinction from Sedgwick and Felsky, is that there is actually a dichotomy between paranoia and reparative reading. So to go back to the image of the fetish, I think that one can imagine that what we find in both Kaufman and Derrida's work is exactly the oscillation between the two, um, an oscillation that refuses to grant either of those impulses the last word. Um, so I, you know, I see these points of connection and also I want to just nuance the sense in which the past is really what's maybe a really key resource for thinking about why Derrida is important right now, his, his, his attention to the past and to inheritance. Thank you. Wow. I mean, there's, uh, thank you for such a rich response and uh, just for providing so many, um, not only connection points, but I also think just ways that uh, uh, open up avenues for discussion at our live panel at the AAR and will not only link up with David's project, but, I, but will uh, assuredly link up with the, uh, the work and concerns of the other panelists. And so, um, you know, Sarah, thank you for that. Thank you for um, all of the sort of um, pulling in all of the various threads that you've that you've um, presented, and are really uh, providing a, a lot of uh, material for thought. So um, appreciate your time. I appreciate you um, taking the opportunity to uh, pre-record with me and, and and offer people a chance to sort of prepare for the live panel. And uh, I look forward to uh, furthering the conversation with David and with the other panelists uh, in just a, in, in just about a week. So thank you. Great. Looking forward to it. All right. Take care.